Hi, my name is Shal Lepa, and you're listening to MIM Spotlight, the podcast that features the writer of the week as chosen by our executive board. Today we received Alison Lee to discuss her piece entitled Confronting Anti-Blackness Within the Asian Community. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, for sure. I'm Alison. I'm in my first year at McGill, and I'm studying political science and sociology. This is my first term with the MIR, and it's been pretty great. So as we said before, you got the writer of the week for your article, Confronting Anti-Blackness Within the Asian Community. What prompted you to write this article? Yeah, so this article has a pretty interesting origin story, and it goes all the way back to around April of 2020. COVID had brought my whole family back together. It was around the first wave in lockdown, and my brother, who works abroad, had come home, and I was stuck at home to finish my senior year of high school online. My family and I are all talkers, and we all talk through dinner. But given the current events, we had landed on the issue of anti-Asian hate crime, which had spiked dramatically given all of the anti-Chinese rhetoric in the media. So think back to Trump referring to it as the Kung flu and the Chinese virus. So naturally, as the weeks passed, our conversations became fixated on issues of racism and more specifically government instigated discrimination. And as we all know, on May 25th, George Floyd was murdered by the police. And this topic, of course, emerged at my dinner table. It was really this conversation that brought to light the extent to which anti-Blackness and really racist sentiment existed in my parents' minds. They pointed out facts that conservative media, of course, had highlighted that Floyd, quote unquote, must have done something wrong or seemed sketchy in some way to have had the police interested in arresting him. That night, our dinner conversation was hours long. My brother and I took turns challenging the internalized racism that was really at the base of a lot of their claims. The conversation also extended to some of the subtopics covered in my article, such as the model minority myth and the cultural significance of colorism and how embedded it is within Asian culture, especially. So for example, in response to my dad's claim about how there were higher crime rates in colored neighborhoods, my brother pointed to the government's failure to promote education in those same neighborhoods as an intervening variable. And to this, both of my parents had argued that there was perhaps a cultural issue of black families deprioritizing education And both of my parents here really reinforced some internalized ideas of the model minority myth. They pointed to Asian immigrant success stories and especially talked about our own family's prioritization of academic success. So this really became a basis of the inspiration for my article and led me to want to discover more about Asian culture and how this has really been an ingrained and accepted idea uh, within our family. Wow, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. We're going to dive into different parts of what you just said, but let me ask you first about the model minority, because you mentioned it quite often, and I'm not sure that everybody is aware of what it is. So the model minority myth, I think for a lot of Asian immigrants might seem like a day-to-day thing. So kids kind of accepting the characterization that we are nerdy or academically gifted or driven, but the history of this has really been a mechanism for white politicians to use Asian success stories to deny Black and Indigenous people of color's demands. And the quick history of this really is a sociologist by the name of William Peterson had essentially created the model minority myth as a means to actively deny the needs of government help and why it's not a necessary mechanism to help minorities in order for them to find financial success. So a lot of this gets to the recent clash among progressives about whether or not Asians have benefited from their proximity to whiteness or white privilege. But the realistic factual basis of this is that immigration policy was extremely discriminatory and had allowed for more highly educated Asian immigrants to come in 
which was the real reason for their relative financial success. So in terms of the model minority myth, it was really politicians showing or using Asian immigrant success really and saying, look, if this minority was able to make it without government help or a government strengthening welfare, for example, we should say that all minorities are able to succeed if they just work a little harder. And that really gets to some of the embedded racist claims that William Peterson made. So some of them being that Asian culture just prioritized hard work unlike other people of color. And some claims that Asian people were just had better work ethic or worked with less reward, kind of comparing it to how Asian immigrants were really underpaid when they originally came working as labor workers in America and in Canada. So a lot of that ends up being embedded into how we consider the model minority today. But it is important to know all of the historical implications from the beginning has been a mechanism to break apart and create divisions between different minority groups. Do you think, without comparing to others, but do you think that it is embedded in Chinese culture and East Asian culture, hard work and resilience? I think it's not embedded any more than other cultures do. I think everyone and any family does prioritize hard work and wants their kids to succeed as an outcome of their merit. I just think that Asian families, for the most part, have internalized that model minority myth and are happy to accept that characterization in order to say, look, we are the better minority. We are the ones who are able to work hard and find success. I think that there's no actual racial component to whether or not people want their kids to work hard or instill that as a priority. It's interesting because this might lead us to the next point of our conversation. So I'm going to share a bit of a perspective on this. The first thing that comes to mind is I remember seeing a video of Andrew Yang. You know, his popularity just skyrocketed in the last two years, let's say. And he kept pushing this thing like, I'm Asian, I do math, you know, I'm good at math. Trust me, I know the numbers. Like UBI is good. Trust me, I'm Asian, you know. A lot of Asians actually thought it was not a good picture because it just reinforced this idea that Chinese are neat, nerdy, that they're good at math, that they only do that. A, it's not necessarily true. B, it puts pressure on those that are not good, that they should fit in that mold, right? I think this is a modern perspective that is embedded in the U.S. But to the contrary, like why I'm asking you this question is that I don't want to compare with others. I will talk of what I know. And I know that those in those East Asian societies in Japan and South Korea and China and Singapore, hard work is very valued. And in some different ways than here, in the sense that they will work till very late hours. It's like praise to stay at work, to overwork. It's praised and you don't have a high salary. And it's always in terms of resilience, you know, it's in terms of you just got to do it, put your head down and continue. Just is it for you? Maybe it's maybe for giving your kids better opportunities. And I'm not saying I want to compare with other societies, but I'm saying like there is this idea and there's this word in Chinese. One of those words that I find very difficult to translate, which is shinku, which means like you're telling a friend or you're telling someone, I acknowledge your suffering. I acknowledge the burden you're going through and I admire it. It's such a culturally loaded word, you know, and it shows kind of this resilience and the Chinese population has gone through famines, has gone through a very lot, like a lot of hardship. And they've been told by this like communist party, work, work for the people, you know. So I think I wouldn't want to compare with others, but I do think there is this component deeply, deeply embedded in Chinese culture and Chinese Confucianism of work hard, don't complain. And I'm not sure how it translated in Canada or in the diaspora. So that's why we're like, I think it's a good segue into talking about this. What do you think is like a big difference from your experience as a Chinese, as a second generation, someone who grew up in Canada versus someone who is in China? 
Yeah, definitely. And before I kind of get into that, I wanted to touch on some of the things you said about how embedded it is to not complain, because I think that that is actually the distinct factor that is built into maybe East Asian culture specifically, that is additional to hard work. And it's really that mentality of keeping your head down and working really hard, regardless of whether or not you're getting the pay or the reward that you deserve. And I, I want to touch on that specifically because I think the issue of not complaining has reflected into the Asian demographic as a voting base in the Americas. A lot of people will talk about how actually Asian immigrants feel some sort of guilt when they're talking to other minorities because of the relative privilege that they have. And I think that that's important because a lot of that has to do with the fact that throughout history, Asian immigrants were maybe not in the same way facing the similar same barriers, but really faced a lot of discrimination in their original wave of immigration as well. And the difference in that is that a lot of Asian immigrants today, at least from my experience with my parents, it feels as though they would rather not talk about the oppression that they have overcome and the obstacles that they had to face in order to get where they are now. And part of that is definitely ingrained in the culture of that not complaining and keeping your head down, working hard until you have the outcome that you want. But I think a lot of it also has to deal with the Confucianism and the elements of Confucianism that really stay as a second generation or as an immigrant family. And so to me, there are a couple things here to unpack. I think the first is that elements of filial piety, which I think we can talk about a little bit later as well, really continue on with the immigrant experience, even if not all of the traditional elements are there. So for example, like in terms of the elements of filial piety that kind of stay, that respect to your elders, the knowing that your uh, those who are older than you have more wisdom or more experience than you. And therefore as a basic level of respect, you should not disagree with them or bring controversial topics to them. I think that's a really important part of the second generation immigrant experience for me, because a big part of that is I don't have authentic memories of China myself. Like everything I know about Chinese heritage is a version of the truth that my parents tell me about and the version that they grew up with. So in many ways it is outdated because time changes things and China has progressed in a lot of ways, but in other ways, it's a version of the heritage that I wouldn't accept as a 21st century like feminist who's grown up in the Western world. And so that discrepancy between the China that exists today, the modern China that I could experience had I the opportunity to visit is really different from the version of the heritage that I was given from my parents. And the difficulty with that really is that when it comes to communicating with my parents or even feeling some connection to Chinese heritage as I was growing up, there really wasn't much of it because I couldn't feel like I could connect with any part of it for sure. And so as I felt stuck between this Western world and the version of Chinese heritage that felt a bit outdated and a little bit out of touch, I felt like I couldn't really do either. And for a long time, given that I lived here in the West, I just pushed away a lot of my heritage entirely. And that led to greater problems down the line. Like I pushed away trying to speak in Mandarin or communicating with my extended family in China. So I lost a lot of that language and I lost a lot of the limited ability that I had, but ability to connect with that heritage authentically. And so when it comes to bigger conversations of race or colorism, it's an even bigger barrier because there's a very clear language barrier in addition to the generational cultural issues that exist. It's interesting because it's so relatable what you say in the sense that my mom left China 35 years ago. And so when she told me about it, like, you know, she tells me about what she knows. She tells me about her friends. She tells me about situations that 
are kind of outdated now. And I didn't know until I went to live there. I went to live there in 2016. I went back in 2018. And you know, some stuff that she would tell me to do, like in terms of networking, the guanxi, right? And in terms of just how to behave, it kind of felt outdated sometimes, or it would just work with the older generation or her generation. But it's crazy to me that sometimes I feel I know China better than her, but I probably know the modern China, right? We were discussing about this the other day, you and I, right? That in some ways, a good example of this is masculinity. Traditional Confucianist thought, the woman is inside, the man is outside, right? And there is still, even though society has progressed, there is still this kind of idea, this embedded sexism in Chinese society that comes from this Confucianist root. And there is this kind of component that has this male traditional role and this relationship with their sons, right? It kind of clashes with this modern view of actors in China and TV stars and, and singers that are more feminine and they accept this and they kind of go away from toxic masculinity as we define it here. So there definitely is some discrepancy between the generations in China, but also like kind of this diaspora. So thanks for bringing that up. I think it's very relatable. So basically, if we go back to the roots of our, of our topic here and of our presence here, how would you say that this kind of discrepancy that you mentioned between you and your parents, these cultural differences, how does racism fit in this? Yeah, and that really kind of leads me to some personal experiences I've had with extended family that I've visited in China. So I think part of it is that there is less interaction with people of color in Asia or in China, in a lot of the provinces where our extended fam family might be. And so to them in a relatively homogenous area in terms of the majority of Chinese people in China being of Han Chinese ethnicity, for the most part, it is really difficult for them to it really be able to conceptualize a world that has this huge range of diversity and color and culture. So when I visit, for example, colorism to me is really embedded there. When I visited my cousins having grown up in mainland China, I know that they have a strong preference for light skin, which they show me because they select makeup that is lighter than their natural skin tone or purchase products that advertise the ability to lighten skin. That's a whole other problem we could talk about if we you know, move on to Southern China and other areas where skin lightening is a huge industry. But I distinctly remember on a recent trip to China, my aunt actually complimented my light skin and conversely criticized my cousin's dark skin, comparing her skin to that of peasant or labor workers. And this is explicit colorism. And I, I want to note the distinction here from racism in that in, in some ways, colorism supersedes race or even ethnicity. And it's really about a preference for light skin across the board. So what I mean by that is even though my cousin and I are equal parts Chinese, and it really isn't a racially charged bias from my aunt in this case, it is still a preference for light skin. And this obviously continues to be a preference when other races are involved. And so for Asian immigrants who have grown up, such as my parents, who have grown up in that society that is deeply has or deeply has colorist biases for people who have light skin, when they move into more diverse places like the West and they mix in other cultures and races and ethnicities, that colorism doesn't just go away. And so that preference for light skin really continues and it continues to be embedded in their implicit bias to be suspicious of those with dark skin or to feel that they are lesser than. Outside of East Asia, colorism and racism are issues. They might have different roots they might be embedded in colonialism, they might be embedded in class issues, 
But for the most part, and for me as an immigrant, it has been extremely pervasive, this issue of colorism intersecting with racism and almost doubling down on that issue of bias and prejudice against those who are of dark skin. Yeah, and it's very common for Black people in China to go visit or to live there and to on the street get stopped all the time. People will touch their skin, people will touch their hair. And at first, as an observer, I knew kind of the roots of what you're saying in the sense that the Chinese people, they don't like dark skin because who has dark skin? It's people that are in the fields that are peasants and it's not seen well. So it's, as you explained, it's not only racist, it's a bit classist, it's a bit colorist, right? And it's more embarrassing. It's a bit like ignorance. That's my first thought. And then there's this second layer of thinking like, why am I thinking this, you know? It is racist in some ways. And the fact that I'm not acknowledging it also shows kind of my bias. It shows that I don't know where it comes from. In some ways, it's maybe because Chinese people are always like, as you say, you want to defend them in the West because they're kind of ridiculed, they're put in the box. So you don't want to criticize them. So it's like you try to excuse and be apologetic. But then it's kind of worse. And it's like recognizing that we're defending something because it's from our own culture, our own race in some ways. It's not excusable either. So I feel we've done a lot of that, like as let's say second generations of saying, oh, it's just ignorance, you know, but the roots of it is that it's not necessarily, there is some kind of, as you explained, like colors are in there. This, this ignorance is also highly insulting for these people that get stopped all the time. It's objectifying them in some ways. So realizing this was just like, okay, how do we go with it now? And what do you think? How would that happen with your family, for instance? That defensiveness, I really think, is part of that second generation immigrant experience for me. Like, not only was it difficult because of the language barrier and the cultural barriers for me to talk about racism with my parents, to some extent, I feel almost like in a slightly condescending way, I feel, oh, it's like they just don't have enough exposure. They just don't know enough. And then for me, it's like first getting over the stuff that you just mentioned. So knowing that way, I can't just excuse them because I know them. I need to hold them to the same standard that I would any other human. And then on top of that understanding, I need to approach this conversation with them, not from a point of condescension or with that tone, not only because it's rude in general, but of course, because in our Asian families, that idea of filial piety and respect is even more important. So bringing up that conversation with them from a perspective of there is stuff that they don't know that they need to learn about. Maybe some of that stuff for my parents was specific to how the American system has systematically oppressed black minorities, but in general, there's a lot to educate them about. And we need to go about that in a really sensitive and sensible way. So for me, and I mentioned this in my article, I asked my parents to watch the documentary 13th with me. And that was really helpful because it illustrates a lot of those systemic structural problems, such as the school to prison pipeline and private prisons in America. And those are some of the problems that really they wouldn't have taken the time to learn about and probably would never have researched themselves. And I think those are the types of problems that really helps them understand that the barriers that Black and Indigenous people in America face are structurally different from the barriers that Asian Americans face. It's not to say that we don't face racism or oppression. It's that it's structurally a different kind of barrier. And therefore, for those minorities, it's important for them to have government reparations and that type of reconciliation process. Whereas for Asian immigrants, it's an issue of, yeah, to some extent, our hard work does pay off because the structural barriers that exist for us are not so embedded in society. 
So this was very well addressed for the diaspora. Do you envision a future where it could change in China? Because you say that it's rooted in how uniform the population is, right? Do you think that with China getting more and more integrated in the global scene, that we could see more diversity in China? Or do you think perhaps that the roots that China is slowly building in Africa could make a difference in the perception of the Chinese population? Or is this kind of a naive conception? No, I definitely think that it can change in China in a different process probably than for immigrants in the West. But as you mentioned earlier, the modern China is really quite different from the one that maybe our parents grew up in. So even on the issue of masculinity, we see K-pop stars or C-pop stars really accepting this new idea of gender neutrality or accepting that masculinity doesn't have to look only one way. And I think that the same thing can be, happen with issues of race because as China, as you mentioned, develops through the Belt and Road Initiative into Africa, there's obviously just going to be more of that contact on a one-to-one human-to-human interaction basis. And I do think that that is a key element of breaking down racism, that issue of exposure and contact theory, if we want to talk about that. But for the most part, I think it is something that can change and it should change. So whether that be some parts through organic contact and other parts through our you know, grassroots pushing for these types of conversations to happen, making sure that we ourselves as Chinese Canadians are holding our own loved ones accountable. I think that that is definitely a movement that should be continuing on. That's a great way to end the podcast, I think. Alison, thanks so much for accepting the invitation. Of course. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this week's Spotlight. Thanks for listening and make sure to follow Legal International Review on Facebook.